Well, hello and welcome to the Christchurch Lifelines podcast, where we will be continuing the conversation started in our recent series on mental health. In these four episodes, we will further explore the realities of mental health struggle and its intersection with faith. Join myself, Aaron Foster, and Christchurch pastor Tara Beth Leach as we sit with guests and professionals to learn how to seek hope in such a frenzied world. Each episode will also feature an intentional spiritual discipline led by Pastor Eric Haskins, designed to help us live into healthy rhythms of prayer and scripture to find hope and peace amidst our struggle. We are so excited for you to join us as we continue the conversation of seeking lifelines for our mental health. Well, today, Tara Beth and I have the distinct privilege of being joined by Amy Simpson. Amy is a speaker, editor, leadership coach, and she's the author of the award-winning books, Blessed Are the Unsatisfied, Troubled Minds, and Anxious. Amy and her husband, Trevor, are local to the suburbs of Chicago, and she prides herself in her dry sense of humor, so I'm hoping that comes out today. And she loves to read almost everything that she can get her hands on. You can find her work on the InterVarsity Press website, and you can follow her on Twitter at A-R-E Simpson. We can't wait to learn from Amy through this conversation today, so let's go ahead and jump in now. Well, Amy, we are so excited to have you. Um, as, as the intro just said, you are an author, you are a coach, um, you are, are really an expert. So, um, Amy, thank you, first of all, for, for being here today. Yeah, very happy to be here with you. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, likewise. And of course, we are, are joined by Christchurch Pastor Tara Beth Leach. Hi, Tara Beth. Hey, Aaron. So excited to be here and unpack just so many complexities when it comes to, to mental health and emotional well-being. And Amy, we're so happy to have you. Thanks. We are indeed. Amy, um, you are local uh, to our area as well. And so you're experiencing the the depth of snow outside right now. I know I was telling Tara Beth right before this that I've logged countless already, it seems like hours um, snow blowing today. So I hope mm -hmm. you are getting dug out or doing the digging out yourself so that you can go through, go through life after this. But how's the, how this, how's the snow treating you today? You know what? I actually love it. I'm a huge snow fan. Okay. <laughs> Me too. And I love cold too. So I'm, I'm in my happy place today. I love cold snowy days. So yeah, as long as I, you know, and I'm, I'm safe at home. I realize for some people that's not the case and it's more challenging, but I'm leaning yeah. into it. <laughs> that's a that's a great point. I uh, I like the snow for the first few snowfalls, and then it becomes becomes more difficult for me. I like all of it, but I as I confessed to Aaron earlier, it's because I have a husband that does the snow blowing and shoveling, yeah. so I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> that yeah. is that that helps. That helps. I I in that situation am the husband who deals with it. So yeah. <laughs> um, it, it works. It works. Way to go, uh, Aaron. Take one you. for the team. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. Um anyway, let's jump in. Um we yeah, we you are an expert Amy in in this conversation and in, in talking about mental health and the effects um, that that can have on on ourselves as we're experiencing it, how it can have effects on the people around us as we're experiencing it, what it looks like for us to to kind of walk alongside people who are going through some of the struggles. Um, you've done the research, you've you've written books, but but in your books, you're vulnerable to share that you've also experienced a lot of that in your life, um, and and that lived experience is probably almost more. Um, gives you more of, a, of a, a voice and a perspective to speak to it than even the research and the writing and all of that. Um, so, so 
Would you mind just sharing a little bit about some of your experience, your personal lived experience with, with some of the effects of, of mental illness and, and mental health struggle? Sure. Yeah, my I actually grew up in a, a pastor's family. My dad was a pastor for 10 years while I was growing up, 10 very formative years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, my, I consider myself a pastor's kid. And then at the same time, um, my mom has struggled with a severe mental illness for her entire adult life. And, and that actually began before I was born. When I was, when I was growing up, I, I didn't, when I was, when I was young, I didn't know that, you know, my family did not acknowledge that there was a mental health problem present in our family. And I think my, I think my dad had very limited understanding of what was happening. And, And my mom, of course, was, was living in her own, with her own, um, inability to sort of understand her own condition, but she, she began showing symptoms of schizophrenia in kind of the classic, at classic age in late, uh, her late teen, early adult years. Hmm. And that was, you know, before I or my siblings came on the scene, but she was able to function well enough that, that for most of the time it was, it was either hidden or explained away. You know, so my mom, when I was growing up, was a very vulnerable person who seemed quite fragile and really uh, kind of incapable of, you know, she didn't feel like someone who could, who could keep you safe as a child, you know, but, and, and so we all kind of uh, automatically worked to keep her safe and kind of take care of her. But you don't really think about those things when you're a child, you just, Hmm. you just do, you know, you just adapt to the way the, the dynamics that are present in your family. So that was really the case for us when, when we were growing up as small children. Um, but my mom's illness was, was, uh, untreated. And as far as I know, undiagnosed, um, although I'm not entirely sure about that, uh, until I was in my, my teenage years. And it, because of that, you know, lack of treatment and the, the stressors that life will place on a family, um, she, her illness became worse over time. She, her symptoms became more severe over time. Um, so when I, when I was a teenager in my early teen years, like 13, my family made a major move. I had grown up in this, in rural settings. My dad was a pastor in rural churches. So he was actually the only staff person, you know, at the church and the, and and we lived in the country and in parsonage right next to the church in this, you know, very rural setting. And we moved from that setting into the city um, and not the suburbs, but like right into the, you know, the heart of a city, which was a huge, as you might imagine, a huge change for all of us. And the, something that caused a lot of stress on our family. At the same time, my dad, we'd made this move because my dad lost his job um, or left his job, I should say, um, at the church. And we, he didn't have another job to go to. So he was unemployed for quite a while, and we were we were already uh, really living in poverty when we got there because um, rural pastors are not typically, at least at that time, we're not typically known for their wealth. <laughs> um, so we were an under-resourced family in a new situation and under experiencing a lot of stress. Now, this is the kind of thing that families go through and have to adjust to. And my family was able to do that over time with the exception of my mom who began to show really significant symptoms of her illness at that mm. point. And, and eventually reached over the 
period of about a year reached a point where she was she was incapacitated by mm. that illness. Uh, that was the point at which she got formally diagnosed, uh, at least uh, that the first time that I know of. It's possible she may have been diagnosed earlier, but I know she was diagnosed at that point. Um, and that changed our family changed from that point on. You know, this schizophrenia had been part of our family from the time before I was born. But from that point on, it was no longer something that we were unaware of or that we could ignore, even though we didn't know what it was called. Mm -hmm. um, we actually didn't, my, my mom did not tell us what she'd been diagnosed with and did not give consent for anyone else in, to talk with her her doctors at that point. So we didn't get formal con confirmation of her diagnosis for another 20 years or so. Wow. wow. But we were, but it was impossible to ignore what we were living with. And we certainly over time came to grips, you know, came to understand that this was probably schizophrenia, mm -hmm. but didn't, didn't uh, have that named for us at that time. So in, so that my teenage years were really marked by a repeat cycle of my mom being uh, hospitalized, um, heavily medicated, mm. um, improving, and and then eventually, as is typical for many people with this kind of illness, um, feeling well enough because of the medication that she would wonder why she was taking those pills every day, you know, mm. and, and mm -hmm. decide that she didn't need them. Right. So mm. she'd stop taking them and then she would decompensate and then we'd start the cycle over again. So that, that was really kind of became the, the pattern of our family life from that point on. And um, schizophrenia, you know, it, mar it had marked our lives all along, but it, from that point on, it became, it became uh, one of the major features of our family. Uh, so, so putting the two together, you know, the, the severe mental illness and the, and the experience as a ministry family, mm. um, my dad was, my now dad never went back into pastoring a church formally after that point, wow. but wow. putting the two together, you know, mental illness and the church and, and all of that is, is a, an area of passion for me because it describes my family's experience, you know, absolutely. Yeah. And I wonder, how did the church respond? Um, did they give you a pathway, a framework? Um, you know, were they able to come alongside of you or did you feel like you had to stay in hiding? Yeah, we, we very much felt we had to stay in hiding, especially mm -hmm. I, I would say my, my siblings and I, I have three siblings. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the third of four. So a couple of them are old, a little older than me and, and one is younger, but we, I think we all felt we all reacted in different ways to, mm -hmm. to the to the stress and the questions and the the crisis that we were experiencing in our lives at that time. Um, but I think all of us, uh, none of us felt we could really talk to anyone about what we were experiencing, particularly in the church. Um, now, the church, our church that we were going to, you know, we were lay people in the church at this time. My dad was not a pastor. Mm -hmm. We were very active and involved lay people. And, and the church was aware that we were struggling, um, that something was going on. I don't know exactly what they, what they thought or what they knew, um, what, what my dad had shared with them, but I know they, they gave us a little bit of, of assistance maybe at the beginning. You know, I think, I think some, a few people brought some meals, you know, maybe when my mom was first hospitalized. Um, and, and there was, 
there were maybe a couple of acknowledgements, quiet acknowledgements, like from, from a member of the pastoral staff. Yeah, right, we know that your family's having a hard time, you know, sort of uh, take some, taking someone aside, you know, I, we know mm -hmm. that you're having a hard time. But that was about it. Um, so we, I, I know I'll speak for myself. I felt very much that this, I, I could not talk about this. And, and really part of that is because I felt I was absolutely affected by stigma and I mm. felt yeah. ashamed of what our family was experiencing. But part of it, to be fair, was, um, and, and because I lacked a, a frame of reference, my, this had never been discussed in my church. Not, I don't remember any mention of mental illness in a sermon, in youth group, in a Sunday school class, you know, anywhere. Um, but part of it, to be fair, was also that I didn't have a good understanding of what we were experiencing. You know, I didn't really have language for it. Um, because we didn't, you know, I didn't know that my mom had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. <laughs> you know, right. I knew that something was terribly wrong, but, but we weren't really getting the language from elsewhere either to understand, okay, this is, this is how we name your experience. Right. And this is how we can talk about it. So there were a combination of factors there, but one of them was that our, that the church was very quiet. Yeah. And I'm guessing too, on that like you weren't seeing probably other people in the community coming and sharing their experiences with, with mental illness and, and mental health struggle either. And so you feel, you know, even more isolated and to take that step to share was probably something that felt way bigger than maybe it even was because there wasn't that precedence in the community to share that. Um, right. Did you find yeah. that to be true? Yeah, that's really well said and absolutely accurate. In fact, I would say for me that I experienced that for decades, for mm. like a couple decades, wow. um, because I, yeah, I didn't have, I didn't have any sense that anyone around me might be experiencing something similar. You know, we, there was, we just weren't, nobody was talking about this. Nobody, right. Everybody was, you know, sort of hiding. So I really felt that our, our experience was so unique that my own experience was so unique that no one would understand it and everyone right. would be terribly shocked by it. And, and when I did eventually, you know, I made a few steps here and there to kind of share a little bit with people, you know, sometimes that's the kind of reaction I met with, you know, just people that didn't know what to say or how to react or, um, but but the funny thing is when I finally started being open about my, my family story at around the same time I started writing about it, um, was then, then people started from all over my life started saying me too, you know, yes. including people who mm. were, uh, in college, went to college with me or who, you know, were at, were, were in my life at those, at some of those times, um, who had similar struggles in their lives and I would never have guessed it. Yeah. Uh, and they wouldn't probably have never have guessed it about me and my family either. Sure. And, yeah. and as, yeah. And as you heard more and more of those, those stories coming forward, those more and more people saying, yeah, I've been experiencing that too. What was that like for you? Mm -hmm. Um, what were, what was your reaction to, to them coming and saying, I've, I've experienced something similar or, or something kind of adjacent to, to your life experience. What was that like? Yeah, I think the the way you put it a little bit ago, Aaron, was feeling that it was even a much bigger revelation than it really would have been. Mm. Um, it it had the effect of of sort of right sizing the the experience to a degree. You know, understanding mm. this isn't this isn't as 
as unique as it felt to me. This isn't going to shock as many people as I thought it would. This isn't maybe going to change the way they see me, you know, because because they are they're going through similar things or they know somebody else who's walked through this. Right. So it does sort of it had the effect of deflating to a degree the the size that this took up in my life. It was also um, really powerful to connect with other people around experiences and really validating like, yeah, you know, that is how, that is what I experienced. Are you telling me that you've experienced that too? You know, anytime we have that sense that we're not walking alone or that we weren't walking alone, um, it's, it's incredibly validating and, and very, it can be really healing. So the other thing it did for me was to make me realize how powerful it can be for other people for me to share my own story and my own family story. And I've seen that over and over again, as I've had the opportunity to do that as an author and, and going, you know, speaking to groups or, you know, having conversations with people who, you know, someone, someone might send them my way because they're like, oh, well, you should talk to her because, you know, she's had a similar experience. And I can see the healing power of, of just saying, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've Hmm. been there too, you know? And so that was, that was, uh, that was, that was one of the places in my life where I've most experienced the beauty of God's grace, just redeeming our story for the sake of ministry to other people. Yes. Yes. And that's, you know, in my journey, um, to emotional health, um, mind, body, soul has been such a similar experience and realizing that, um, that I'm not alone in my journey, that there are others, um, who love Jesus that have been affected by mental health in one way or another. And all of a sudden, when you start looking around and you think, oh my goodness, there are so many others, like I'm not alone. I'm understood. I feel seen. And, uh, and you, you do that so vulnerably and beautifully, um, in your books and in your writing. And we so appreciate it. And I know one of the things I love so much is your passion for the church, um, to give a help, to talk about this, to destigmatize, to give a healthier framework. And you offer in your book, troubled minds, um, mental illness and the church's mission. You offer a lot of real staggering statistics. One of the things that you note is you say, although 80% of church leaders said they believe mental illness is a real treatable and manageable illness caused by genetic, biological, or environmental factors, only 12.5% of them said mental illness is openly discussed in a healthy way in the church. Do you, do you have any stories of, of churches out there that are like, are you seeing a movement? Are you seeing a shift and churches starting to embrace this and talk about it more and destigmatize and create spaces for those who are in hiding to come out of hiding? Are you seeing that? I am. Yeah, actually, I, I, you know, so I've been uh, writing and, and speaking and, you know, kind of out there having conversations with people on this topic for the last 10 years or so. Um, I've seen a lot of movement. And some of that is, I'd say, on a grand scale where we're just getting, we're becoming more open about mental health problems within the church. And I think I'm seeing, you know, just more conversation um, on the, on, on, on the, a big picture level, which I think is really healthy and really good. But I've also seen a lot of this on this, a small scale. 
you know, mm. where it's this, this church or that church who's having a breakthrough conversation um, or a, a church leader who's kind of changing their, their mind <laughs> or, mm. or having their eyes opened um, to, to seeing this in, in a, a, a different way than they were, whether it's with greater compassion or it's with what I would call maybe a more holistically uh, biblical view mm. um, or, or maybe it's just with greater complexity, you know, acknowledging that there's far more complexity here than we often like to think yeah. as, as believers and especially as church leaders, you know, because mm-hmm. we, we, you know, many of us are tempted to, I, I think all of us are tempted to believe we've got all the answers, right? right. <laughs> and it's no different for, for people who are in ministry. Um, so I'm seeing, I am seeing some of that open up and, and I'm really encouraged by it. And a lot of that, that I'm seeing is, is really coming as a direct result of people's experiences and share and people sharing their stories. Hmm. Um, you know, in many places, what's happening in this individual church or that individual church, it might be because, you know, a pastor read a book or went to a seminar or something, but often it's because somebody in the congregation had an experience and, and they, and they, they pulled other people into it. You know, mm-hmm. they, they let up, they gave other people a window into, into their lives and what they were, how they were suffering and allowed people to minister to them in that space. And that became, that's become a ministry in their mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. And it really start started with, with maybe one family. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's really good. And, and I'm, I'm, so encouraged to hear that you you see that trend happening that you're seeing churches um, engage with this more and hopefully engage with it with it more healthfully too um, in a way that that isn't condemning or isn't trying to shame or to to keep people in hiding but um, opens the table and the conversation to for people to to start sharing their um, their their struggle and their their darkness and in, in this degree. Um, I think it's, it's really, uh, the, the chapter from your book, troubled minds that says mental illness is mainstream. Um, so true. I think, I think it's, it's amazing, um, to think that you published that almost 10 years ago. Um, and 10 years ago, the conversation then was not nearly what it is now. And even now it's feeling like we're, we're just on this recognition that yes, it is mainstream. Um, and so, um, yeah, the prayer, my prayer is, is that we would continue to keep scratching the surface and, and dive deeper and deeper into recognizing that, like, like you said, I love that you said, um, when you were recognizing that people around you were, were sharing their, um, their struggles with you, you realized that you were not so unique, not that it wasn't a big deal, um, that, that, oh, because other people have this, that means mine's, you know, not that big of a deal. No, but that it's not unique. And so there's community in that to, to care for one another's things that are happening, um, not to dismiss them or to, to belittle them, but to care well for them. Um, cause the truth is it, it is mainstream. This is, this is, um, really prevalent. Um, and in your books, you do a really great job of, of kind of describing the prevalence, um, of, of mental illness and, and mental health struggle. Would you share a little bit about that now for us? Yeah. Mental, mental health, you know, first of all, we all have mental health <laughs> and we all have subprime mental health which I think is really important to recognize. So, you know, it's very easy to, when we're talking about conversations around health to 
think put people in two categories, you know, healthy yeah. and unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And, and yet this is true for us holistically, you know, there's nobody <laughs> on the planet who can honestly claim that their health is perfect, you know, in every way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's right. always something that's aching or, um, you know, tight or, you know, not, not an organ that's not functioning at its optimal level, or we have a headache or whatever, you know, somebody's, everybody's got something. And that's true for our mental health as well, which is a part of our overall health as, as humans. Um, so we all have subprime mental health are, are all of us have ways in which we function mentally and emotionally that are not optimal. Um, the difference between someone who's considered mentally healthy and mentally ill is really a matter of the level of disruption hmm. in that per, in that person's subprime mental health. Wow. You know, so I'm not, you know, I don't have schizophrenia, right? My mom does. Um, but what's the difference between us? Well, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot, right there. I don't want to, I don't want to be dismissive of that fact. There's schizophrenia is a, it's a biological disorder. There's, there's actual damage that's happened in her brain that is degenerative and, you know, has a huge impact on her life. I don't want to be dismissive of that at the same time, some of what she experiences, you know, confusion and fear and, you know, some of what she experiences, we all experience, but they don't disrupt our, they don't disrupt my life to the degree that they disrupt her life. Hmm. Now I don't hallucinate, you know, I don't have, uh, I hope a lot of delusions, but, but do you understand what I'm saying? It's really a matter of being disrupted to a degree that you're, it's considered an illness versus being disrupted to a degree that you're still functioning. You're considered to be functioning normally. Yeah. Can you, can you, yeah. sorry, real quick, can you give um, other examples of different types of disruptions? Yeah. So it's even more true for things like that are more common, like men, like depression and anxiety um, anxiety disorders, you know, which are anxiety disorders are the most common form of mental illness in the United States. Wow. What's, Second, what's, what are the percent percentages there? Could you give us some just depth of yeah, what that means? Yeah. In, in, in any given year, we're talking about for overall for, um, mental health problem, diagnosable mental illness in any given year. Um, we're talking about one, about one in four, people wow. who wow. are living with or will be diagnosed with mm. a mental health problem sometime that year wow. within that year. Wow. Um, and for some people, those are short episodic experiences where the next year they might not fall into that, that category. And for other people there, it's a, it's a chronic health issue that will affect them for the rest of their lives. Wow. So over the course of a lifetime, um, it's, more like 50% of people who will at some point in their lives experience a diagnosable mental Whoa. health problem. Whoa. And for anxiety disorders, it's it's about 30% of the, the American population who will experience an anxiety disorder at some point in their lives. Wow. Um, but you know, the difference between somebody who's anxious and somebody who experiences an anxiety disorder is a perfect example of disruption, Mm. you know, because we all experience anxiety. And in fact, anxiety is not a bad thing. We like to, Mm. our our culture, our society, I think currently really paints anxiety as a bad thing that we need to avoid at all costs, but it's not, it's actually like fear. It's a helpful tool that 
that is part of our, our, the emotional spectrum of our lives and can help us make wise choices and keep us out of danger and help us learn from our mistakes and, and actually help us perform better than we would if we were not feeling anxious. But that's at a certain level, right? That's at a healthy level that, that we experience anxiety. When it gets outside of that level, where it's disrupting our lives and to where we're not considered to be functioning normally anymore, then it's a, dis a diagnosable disorder. And that can mean, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder where anxiety is driving you to the point where you have these compulsions and obsessions that really take over your life. And you can't, you know, they're, they're having, they're exercising power over you um, that you, you can't control to a degree. Um, wow. Or something like post-traumatic stress disorder, which is also an anxiety disorder, um, but is a, you know, a result of a traumatic experience that again is disrupting your life to such a degree that you can't, you're not functioning normally. Same with like a, a panic attack, you know, panic disorder. So there are, there are types of experiences with anxiety that become disorders, but, but I think it's, important and valuable for us to recognize that that's, it's not like that person experiences problem anxiety. And I don't, I have days when I experience problem anxiety, you know, but I've never been diagnosed with a, with an anxiety disorder. So those experiences are, I think just, we're, we're all in this together to a degree, you know, we're all experiencing many of the same things. It's just a matter of, is, is it, has it reached a point in my life where you know, it's out of control or controlling me, or it's disrupting my life to a degree that I, I, I need help yeah, um, yeah. to get out of that situation. So I would love to just take a look at this from, from, you know, two different dimensions, if you will, you know, on one hand, we, so, so up to 50% uh, through a lifetime is going to have some sort of disruption. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on the other hand, there's, there's a group of people that are following alongside of someone that's going through that disruption and wondering, how can I come alongside of them? What do you know? And they'll say a lot of well-meaning things, but sometimes harmful. So I wonder first, if you could unpack for us, like those who are experiencing the, the disruption, you know, with the Christian framework, is there any hope? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think for, it's important. There's a lot of hope <laughs> and really the hope here is, is twofold. There is that let's, let's face it, not all of our hope around any form of illness is simply in a relationship with Christ, right? Yeah, There's right, hope in medicine. Right. <laughs> There's yes. hope in, you know, counseling yep. and, yep. and other, other treatments yep. that are available to us. Yep. And ultimately these are, I believe these are gifts from our creator yep. to, to help us, um, to help That's us right. manage a life in a world that we were not created for. That's right. I you call, know, we I call the means of grace. I call therapy and medication and means of grace. There you um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there's hope there. There mm -hmm. really is. And, and yep. the hope that's present for us in medical, medically based treatments in therapeutic counseling are getting better all the time. Yeah. Um, some of the medications that are, there's a lot of, uh, medications, psychiatric and medications get knocked around a lot. Um, and I won't go way into that. And, and in some cases they are used unnecessarily or they're overused. And in other cases, they are literally saving people's lives mm -hmm. or giving them a life that they could not otherwise have. But some of these medications are up to 90% effective. 
I mean, yeah. we have some very mm. effective treatments out there and they're getting better yeah. all the time. So there's hope there in just receiving the kind of help that's made available to us all through our healthcare system and mm. through, you know, and, and so for the church, one of the things we can do is help people get access to that kind of care yeah. yep. um, and help them overcome stigma so that they will access that type of care. But there's also a lot of hope in Christ and in the church, right. in the Christian community. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's powerful about the going back to the experience of sharing my story one of the things that's powerful about that is not only connecting with other people and realizing you're not alone but but finding that people are in it with you Mm -hmm. and when the body of christ is present with you Mm -hmm. christ is present with you you know Mm -hmm. i mean christ is anyway but you can find you can find christ there in a way that you cannot when you're on your own that's right. Um, that's just the way, that's just the way we've been created. Right. So there is so much hope that we can find in, in the, in our future as, as the people of God, knowing that um, Christ's plan for the world is to, is to redeem us and to, Amen. and to renew us and remake his creation. Yes. You know, that's, it can't be more hopeful than that, hmm. but there's hope in there. There's hope in there for us now as well. Yeah. You know, we are living in, the already and not yet. We are living in a space where what's been promised to us is ours. And yet we don't live it. it we don't live all of it in our day-to-day experience, but it's still ours. That's so right. in that day-to-day experience, we can live in light of that hope, even while we acknowledge we still struggle, we're, we still suffer. And we, we meet each other there in that place. And we meet Jesus there in that place. That's right. Um, and there is tremendous hope there. And, and God is doing, you know, he's still, he hasn't stopped uh, renewing people. He hasn't stopped redeeming people. He hasn't stopped, you know, meeting us in grace. So mm-hmm. people do experience healing. Um, right. and, and sometimes that healing is miraculous. Most of the time it's not, it's mm. actually through relationship with the body of Christ. It's through making those daily choices to do yeah. the things that you know you need to do to take care of yourself to get better. You know, it's people can get better. They can live in recovery and from mental illness. And there's there's a lot of hope in that. Well. Wow. Amen. Amen. And so how can the church be the church? Um, you know, I mentioned that, at least in my experience, you know, I've heard a lot of good people. They, they mean well. They, they want that ultimate, you know, resurrection power in our lives, in my life. And I believe that. Um, and sometimes we can say things that that might cause harm. Um, uh, what are some examples of maybe things that that well-meaning Christians say that you know maybe could not be maybe it's not as helpful? And why? Why would it not be helpful? Yeah, I think one of the things we tend to do is to over spiritualize mental illness mm-hmm. in a way that we don't tend to do with other forms of illness. Um, wow. And I think there are, there are reasons, there are reasons for that. One of which is that we can't typically see what's happening in a mental illness. You mm. know, you can't see into a person's brain. So you can't see the, the biological component of what's going on for a person. And so it can be very easy to, um, to make that, a, a, a an ethereal spiritual problem when it yeah. actually literally often is a biological issue. Hmm. So we forget that our brains are our physical organs of our bodies. 
and they can just like any other organ of our bodies, they, things can go wrong there. Yeah. And when things go wrong with the brain, things go wrong all over the place. Um, you know, and, and, and that has consequences for us just as when something has gone wrong with the heart or the lungs mm-hmm. or the liver. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, when we have this understanding, this assumption, we approach someone under the assumption that their problem is an, eth- an ethereal spiritual problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, tr- and we try to apply a spiritual solution. It we're often um, missing a lot of the problem and offering a solution that feels trite <clears throat> and even terribly burdensome to the people, mm. the, the person we're talking to, because yeah. it comes across as like mm. a pharisaical condemnation of the person that you, and there's some way in your life in which you are not performing up to standard. Mm-hmm. So we say thing, people say things like, if you just spent more time in prayer, yes, right. You know, or if you just, this is probably my favorite. Um, and I'm saying that sarcastically, um, <laughs> you just had more faith. Yep. Um, yeah. Because it's like, how much less helpful could you be? That is yeah. something that is literally impossible for me to do, to do, to do yep. or to measure. Like, right. how do I know when I'm getting more faith yeah. and how do I know yeah. when I've got enough? Yeah. You know, it's, I, it's just incredibly unhelpful and it can, and it can feel, you know, I think for any of us, regardless of the, the problem to which we're trying to apply that solution, that would feel like a terribly burdensome sort of condemning you're, oh, yeah. you're not, you know, yep. you're, this is all your fault and you're not measuring up yep. sort of condemnation. Yep. So yeah. that, that kind of thing is really unhelpful. And I think it kind of starts as, as many things do, <laughs> it starts with our theology mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. starts with our, our understanding of the, of the problem that we're trying to address. So if we believe, you know, that <clears throat> if I believe that God is, 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 here to solve my problems and make me feel good. And if I believe that anything that's gone wrong in my life, if anything has gone wrong in my life, it means that I'm somehow it's God punishing me because I'm, because obviously if he were happy with me, he'd be making me feel good. You know, if I have that kind of theology and I see somebody else who's suffering in their life, I'm I'm going to apply that same theology to them. And then I'm going to, I'm going to give them a prescription that's based in that kind of theology that Mm. if you just did the right things in your life, you wouldn't be experiencing this. That's good. So I think, um, honestly, our churches really need to start with beginning to teach a sound and robust theology of suffering Mm. of all kinds. We Mm. are, we are really missing that. I think in most of our churches to really talk about suffering from a Christian perspective, Mm -hmm. Um, what it, why do we suffer and what does it mean to suffer and what role does suffering play in the Christian life? How is suffering good? Yep. And where is God? Yeah. Where is God God in that? And, and actually, why does, when you read scripture, why does God actually seem to value suffering? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and how does it, they're blessed. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And how does it lead us into a greater identification with Christ? Mm -hmm. All of that, we, I I don't hear much of that in the church. And in fact, we're, because we're, we, we may not be teaching a sort of prosperity gospel within uh, most of our evangelical churches. And yet I think we're often allowing that sort of, that sort of view of the gospel to persist in the church because we're not contradicting it. 
That's right. And people walk in off the street as Westerners who have a, a materialistic mindset and who's, you know, who's uh, who've been formed by the liturgy of the world all week long. Right. And then we walk into church and, and it, we don't have something sort of contradicting that um, that way of thinking, then we can just apply those same sort of consumeristic that consumeristic mindset to our faith and to our relationship with God. Yeah. yeah. So we need I think our churches need to be contradicting that at the theological level, at the doctrinal level and helping us to think differently about suffering in general. And then out of that could come a better, more, uh, more biblical view of what I believe is a more biblical view of mental, the suffering around mental health. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's really good. And I appreciate you sharing that it, in our Western culture, we want to separate suffering from the regular rhythm of our life as much as we can, yeah. but that's, that's unnatural, right? The, the regular rhythm of human life it is to experience and wade through suffering, not to diminish it or to get rid of it, but to to live it. Um, and that's what we see the the story of Scripture. We see God's people um, moving through suffering. We see Jesus walking and processing and, and and trudging through suffering on his way to the cross. And and when we are able to, like you're saying, Amy, it's so good. The can we if we can offer. Um, a solid theological framework for suffering and talk about it more. It not only helps people who are suffering, but it helps people come or who aren't suffering come around those who are who are not suffering. In the same yes. way that that um, you were saying, when when the church can be a place where we can more and more talk about um, mental illness and and struggle around that, um, it's it's giving opportunity for people to feel seen and and heard, but also for folks who aren't experiencing that um, in that season of their life, it gives them language and and experience to say, oh, this is what somebody else, this is what my brother is experiencing, this is what my sister is experiencing now i can right. i can be a little bit more equipped to to sit with them and wade through this with them um so just just super good um appreciate yeah. you sharing that yeah when you have a, a community who has an expectation of suffering mm. it's a it's a place where it's safe to suffer wow <laughs> you know yeah. you don't have to yeah. <clears throat> hide your suffering when it's ex expected that that's going to be something yeah. you always you know, and then on the other other side, there are practical things. I don't want to just focus necessarily at that level because I think yeah. for many people they'll feel like oh, I don't, I don't have, I'm not, I don't have a, I'm not a pastor. Yeah, yeah. Help. How do I give a biblical framework for that? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot we can do on the practical side too, and I think one helpful um, way to come at that is to think to to stop as you're thinking about how can I help. Um, to stop and ask yourself a couple of questions. And that is one, what do I already know how to do for people who are suffering? Mm. And two, is this something I would do <laughs> for a person who were suffering with, with a broken leg, you know, mm. or, you know, wow. some, some other sort of form of illness or injury that I can see that I'm maybe more comfortable with. Um, hmm. Because in, in most cases, I think people, some of the things that we're tempted to say or do for people who are, suffering around mental health and it may be their own suffering or maybe their family, right? Because mm -hmm. fam family members or other loved ones really need people to come alongside them as well. And they often feel like they're infected or something somehow because people just pull back. Right. So if, if someone, if, if I looked at this fam, this family or this person and I, and, and I saw a broken leg in this situation, would I, is this what I would do? 
Yeah. Would I pull back from them? Would I avoid them? Or would I like pretend it wasn't there and like not bring it up and like right. Or would I um would I tell them to pray harder, you know, and they mm-hmm. would feel better? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so so running things through that filter, I think can be really helpful, even though of course, mental suffering and emotional suffering are, have their differences with, mm-hmm. with something like a broken leg, right? And, and addressing them certainly can be far more complex. Sure. Um, but there are a lot of similarities as well. And I think it's, it can be really helpful to just kind of run things through that lens. And, and then the other question I asked, raised was, you know, what, are, what do I already know how to do? Mm-hmm. And we forget that we actually know how to do a lot in this space. In fact, the church historically is really good at, at this, at this space, like mm-hmm. ministering to people who need help, Yeah, especially within our own congregation. I mean, what do we do when somebody, if there's a death in the family or somebody, mom is hospitalized or, you know, in, in this time of COVID, you know, what, when, when there's COVID is sweeping through the family and like, somebody's got to take care of them. What do we do? Right. We, we bring food, we give rides, we help, we provide financial help. Mm. We babysit their kids. We take care of their dogs. We do their laundry. We clean their house. We make sure that people are they're They're tidied over. If they need to be tidied over. Um, <clears throat> we put them in touch with, with resources, you know, if, Hey, there's a, there's a great doctor for that. There's, you know, there are all kinds of practical things that we know how to do that we offer for other types of suffering or hardship that we tend not to offer to people who are experiencing a crisis or hardship that's related to mental health. In Mm -hmm. fact, many people have called mental illness, the no casserole illness. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Because uh, if you, chances are, you know, somebody in your family is going through a serious bout of depression or was just diagnosed with bipolar disorder or somebody's hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital, there's a good chance. There's a very small chance. Anybody's coming over with a casserole that evening Wow. or let alone going to visit your loved one in the hospital or, you know, um, we just tend not to offer those things. We tend to hold back I think out of a sense of fear and maybe just out of a sense of incompetence because we don't, we think we don't know what to do. Um, and, and which is the opposite of what people need for us to pull back yeah. in those times. And yeah, we tend sure. to, yeah, kind of wring our hands and wonder, well, what can I possibly do? Because I can't fix this. Mm. But with, when somebody in your church is going through cancer treatment, I, most of us can't fix that either. <laughs> In fact, nobody can fix that. Hmm. An oncologist can't fix that. They can do their best to prescribe a treatment that they're they're going to hope is going to lick that cancer, but they can't fix it. That's right. That's so right. And we, it's, so what yeah. do we do? Do we just say, I can't fix that. So I'm going to walk away from these people. I'm going to abandon them. We don't. We pull, we draw near to them mm, because we really know good. that our presence with them and the pra- very practical things we have to offer can make a difference for them and can see them through. That's so good for us to pull back from people who are experiencing something else that we also can't fix. doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. Because we can offer those same practical things and that ministry of our presence to them too. Mm. 
Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. That's, that's really wise and, and really practical too. I think there's the, that balance that you're, you're striking. That's really, really good where we're, where it's the, the high level that gives us a, a framework, um, but immediately giving us, um, tangible things that we can go out and, and, and do right now. Um, I want to give you an opportunity as, as we close out, um, if you were to speak directly to somebody who's listening to this podcast and experiencing experiencing some of the the struggle and they're they're hearing what you're saying and they're like yeah maybe that's me maybe maybe I I'm having a really hard time managing the disruptions because of because of what I'm feeling um, and and they they they're hearing the overwhelming call to to share and to be vulnerable but they feel maybe I don't have somebody that I feel safe sharing this stuff with what's mm-hmm. what's what would you say to that person yeah. I guess, first of all, I would say I understand that. Mm. Um, I, I do. I've, I've been there as a loved one and, and as a person who felt, you know, very closed off from, from connection with other people around my struggles for a yeah. long time. And I would also say that I know that there's a whole different way of being that mm. you can step into mm. and it's going to require taking some risk. Um, and that may be that you find that safe person in a, a professional, you know, a mental health professional that you can talk to. Sometimes yeah. that feels safer than, I think often that can feel safer than going to someone, you know, who's just a, like somebody, you know, in your personal life, because uh, at least you, you know, that this, this counselor or doctor you're talking to is getting, is going to get paid <laughs> for your, for their time with you. And somehow that, you know, that feels transact, it's transactional, right? It can feel, that can feel safer than say, ex- ex- taking the risk of exposing yourself in a relationship that, you know, is interdependent. So I would say, um, please take the risk in inherent in opening up to someone, whether that's a mental health professional or that's a friend or it's a family member or a pastor or someone, there is someone, you can find someone in your life who will be safe enough for you to open up to, who will listen to you, who will care for you and who will help you connect with more help. And I'd also ask that person to consider that doing so is like the choice to, to reach out and get some help is not just about them. It's mm. also about everybody else who loves them, mm. you know, who's relying on them. I mean, if you're, if you're a parent, you know, your kids need you to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if you're a child, your parents need you to do it. You know, there are people who love you and whose lives are touched by yours, who, who need that from you and want that for you. Mm. And I would also say there, I'll go back to what we were talking about earlier in this conversation. There is a lot of hope out there. And the one who, you know, is really dealing in hopelessness is the enemy of our souls. Yeah. There's, there's no one who has your best interests at heart who would tell you there's no hope. Mm. The one, the only one who is peddling hope is the one who seeks to destroy you. Mm. And it is not, uh, you don't have to listen to that voice. That's right. There's an, there's another voice who offers life and That's hope right. and Amen. healing both now and, and in eternity. And yeah. I just encourage anybody who's in that situation to seek to, to answer that call, to reach out for hope and make that connection. Yeah. Amen. 
Amy, thank you so much. And what I appreciate and the overwhelming um, sense I'm getting from this conversation and hearing you talk about it is this is a conversation that doesn't often feel hopeful when we hear people talking about it. We hear the news talking about the crazy statistics, right? The the wild prevalence of, of mental illness. And overwhelmingly from this conversation, I'm hearing you speak with such hope about it. Um, and so that is that is an amazing message um, for for folks who are who are feeling the the pain right now, and it's an amazing challenge for for folks who are not to to live um, in a way that that offers that same hope to people that they might know um, that are that are going through a difficult season right now. Um, so thank you for that. We 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 really appreciate that. Um, is there so I want to point everybody to uh, Amy's books. Um, we um, our preaching team throughout this series has used them, leaned on them. Tara Beth said um, they were the the crutch for us this this series. Um, and so blessed are the unsatisfied, anxious, and troubled minds um, are three of Amy's books. Amy, where can we find them? Where can um, our community find out more about you? Um, yeah, what how can where would you point us? Yeah, so you can find me on social media. I'm on Facebook, uh, Twitter. Um, those are the main two. Great. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can find me there, Amy Simpson. Um, my website's down currently, so I won't I won't uh, send anybody there. But <laughs> um, but yeah, you can find me out there. And uh, my books are published by University Press, all three of them. So any anybody can go get them from the publisher. They're also on. Amazon and um, Christian bookstores and pretty much anywhere that you typically buy Christian books, you can find them. Wonderful. Yeah, we are big um, University Press fans here at Christchurch. Um, well, again, Amy, thank you so much. Um, we we appreciate your time and your your um, your expertise, and and most importantly, we appreciate your hope that you offer all of us in this conversation. So, thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for your work, for your ministry and for the hope that you gave us today. And now let's kick it over to Pastor Eric Haskins as he offers us a spiritual practice that can serve as a lifeline for all of us. This is a great podcast. So many formational points to reflect on. So good. Gifts of grace. Gifts of grace. I, I think it was uh, Pastor Tara Beth mentioned that term, and I've always loved that term, gifts of God's grace, which when, when you think about it, uh, is all around us, aren't they? But I've found that many times when we are dealing with emotional health, we, we miss some of those gifts of grace that are present right near us. Uh, Paul encourages us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in our circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Now, personally speaking, I sometimes really dislike this passage and it's one of those passages in the Bible that some days I wish wasn't there. And, and it's also one of those passages that definitely is a lot easier said than done at times. But, but this is where we engage with spiritual practices to offer the Holy Spirit to shape and to form our hearts and minds. 
So for this first week's spiritual practice, uh, may I encourage us to engage in what I call the two blank approach to gratitude. Catchy, isn't it? I, I know, I know. You can judge me later for it. The two blank approach to gratitude. Here's what I mean by that. Get a notebook just for this practice or, or create one ongoing note on your phone to do this daily. And what you do in this practice is you simply fill in the blanks. God, today, I'm thankful for blank because blank. Be sure to do both because it draws out and plants it deeper. And this could be as simple as, God, I'm thankful for lasagna because it reminds me of my parents' great meals growing up as a kid. Or, Lord, I'm grateful for my kids' laughter because it reminds me there is joy in the world when I might not see it myself. Or as Pastor Terabeth was offering uh, just a few moments ago, God, I'm grateful for my new medication because I feel as if I'm coming out of a fog for the first time in a while. God, I'm, I'm grateful for the promises from the scriptures I read today because they remind me that nothing, absolutely nothing can separate me from your love. All these items are gifts of God's grace. But how often do we miss them? They're everywhere, folks. They're everywhere. Do we see them? Are we looking? Now, remember, this is a spiritual practice. So in that, we do have to work at it. Some days are easier than others. But the beauty and the grace here uh, is when this comes over time, when we read back over a week, a month, a year, and we see these gifts of God's grace throughout our lives. They hold us. They sustain us. And they become a lifeline of hope that we cling to, to find our way back to health. And I do hope that as you experience this spiritual practice this next week that as you look for those gifts of grace all around you will hold on to them and you will share them and you will believe in them and you will find hope and the love of Jesus like never before enjoy Thank you so much for joining us, and a special thanks to Amy Simpson and pastors Tara Beth Leach and Eric Haskins for all the wisdom and truth that they shared with us today. Our prayer is that this last hour has been fruitful for you in your journey of faith and toward mental health. We look forward to seeing you next time on Lifelines, continuing the conversation.